Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Mark, the COO of Geek Plus, and we discuss robotics equipped with AI driving automation in warehouses, how 5G is opening new doors for futuristic technology, and how cloud computing is making mass deployment of AI and robotics possible. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Are those robots in your background? Those are robots in the background. That's right. We had some robots running around for you today. Is this a video loop or is this for real? Those are real. Those are for reals. That's those our. Are real. th- those are our uh, picking robots. That's crazy. Yeah, so they, they manage all the inventory. So those yellow pods that you see, that's the racks that inventory lives in. When you when you place an order, a robot goes, picks up one of those shelves, and that's where it all starts. You know, I had seen the video a long time ago on Amazon, like inside an Amazon house warehouse where all the robots were doing that. And then I got to see that there were companies that were making these. And it, at that, it's the moment when it occurred to me that other people need this picking technology as well. That's right. That's right. It's it's cool stuff. It's it's definitely different. We've kind of turned uh, normal operations on their head, so to speak. How long has this been a thing? Uh, you know, I think since about really since probably 2006. It goes back quite a ways. Um, I, you know, if you if you kind of go back to the genesis of all this stuff. It really, I think, started with Webvan way back in the day when Webvan was trying to do grocery fulfillment, and they they failed. And in the end, in the summary, that one of the reasons was they couldn't reduce costs to actually pick an order enough. So the founder, one of the founders of Webvan, left and started up another startup, which turned into uh, Takiva. And there, what the onion that they peeled was was intralogistics. So in the warehouse, how to deliver an order efficiently, right? Cost effectively. And, you know, you, you if you think about your traditional warehouse, somebody's walking around picking your, I think a lot of people when they shop online, they don't really have a good idea of where their stuff comes from, right? You know, if you really go all the way back, your stuff comes out of the dirt, goes into like materials, goes into a factory, goes into production, all this. But if we just talk about the delivery piece, you know, I, I think when people place an order online, they don't realize somebody actually has to go move that material, put it into a box, label it. Somebody has to carry it, deliver it, all this. And so, you know, the founder of Kiva, he he said, well, I'm going to invert that. I'm going to, I'm going to have the inventory come to the person. So instead of a person walking 10, 15 miles per day, literally in a warehouse, picking orders, the stuff just comes to them and they stand there and pick it. And so it was, it was a really catchy idea. And, and around 2012, uh, Amazon acquired that company for then what was a lot of money, almost three quarters of a billion, maybe a little more. And um, and the rest is kind of history. It, that group in, in the Boston area spun off a whole bunch of different robotics companies. You know, you've got Fetch, Locust, Six River, companies like ourselves, Geek Plus, et cetera, all sort of came out of that concept of inverting the way the operations worked. So it was, it was, it's, it's been a kind of a neat time, you know? And these aren't small businesses either. I mean, you have over 800 people at your company. That's right. That's right. We're, these are large entities and, and we support 
world-class players. You know, you think about the the major retailers of the world and what they're doing and how they've had to respond, especially with coronavirus, where a lot of the shopping has gone online. And so it's fueled a fire that was already underway and, and pushing the industry in this direction of automation. By the way, they're beautiful robots. Last night, I was sitting on the couch watching... Um... Uh, battle bots with my wife and, and kids. And she was asking me, oh, you know, what's going on tomorrow? Who, who are you talking to tomorrow? And I was like, oh, you got to see this. And you were exactly right. You hit it perfectly earlier when you said most people don't understand this because I showed her this video that I don't know if you guys sent it to us or, or not, but it's this, uh, it shows it's high energy and it shows the picking actually happening and like a fast forward motion. And it's a really upbeat. I loved it. I thought it was really slick marketing material to understand what you do. And we'll even post it in the show notes since I'm talking about it. But I shared that with her and she's like, whoa, this is what has like, yeah, when you press order on that Amazon, you know, there's people they're picking and she's like, that is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. We we haven't a lot of different um, robots. So we've been at this since I think 2013 or so. Uh, So we've got a lot of intrinsic knowledge that we've developed by creating our own. We, we have our own warehouses. So in China, we operate our own, we own and operate our own 3PL, uh, which means third-party logistics. And so, you know, the world's biggest shopping day is 11-11, right? Singles day. And we process a tremendous amount of orders. So like we set records every year, more and more every year, we're, we're breaking new records. And in order to be really good at what we do, we have our own own and operated 3PL because it's not only do we use it to process orders for our customers who who use us as a service, but it's it's the best lab, right? So when you're when you're actually operating something, it's very different than when you're just providing a service. When you have to live with it, it's a whole different ball of wax. So we live with the software, we live with the hardware. We have our own factory in China. Our R and D is in China. Our factory has. Um, you know, more than 30,000 pieces per year capacity. And we're, we're building a second factory. So we're expanding, we're, we're bringing manufacturing and integration to the States as well to serve this market. But, you know, the, the point of, of why I mentioned that is our software has been around for all these years and we continue to add to it. So every quarter we're, we introduce 200 new features that could be bug fixes, right? Cause there's crap that happens. And, Every time we install a system, it's like a fingerprint because even though it's robots and racks and all of this, those building blocks, how you apply them are very different for each client. So it's a fingerprint and they may find some weird corner case. So we do bug fixes, but we also do feature enhancements and feature requests. And we release a lot of, you know, 200 plus every quarter. And so the software is very mature. And if you're not too familiar with what the software is, we do not, our software manages the inventory. So when you, if you see the, the cubbies, the, the rack behind me, you can see it's got lots of little cubbies on it, right? Yeah. So each of those racks can have 150 cubbies. A cubby can be storing one particular type of items or just golf balls. Or we can say, put golf balls, pencils, and uh, shavers in the same cubby, just mix them. The software will determine how different they are so that a human can reach in and just pick because you don't want to put like, you know, golf balls, and the only difference is a number on the golf ball, then the picker is going to go crazy trying to pick the golf ball. So we'll, our software will manage all that inventory. Do we do very high density storage? Do we do random storage? Do we do low density, fast moving? Lots of different ways you can manage the inventory. And this software controls all that. 
But then we also control. So we've got a number of different modules that we've that we run, and we do traffic management. We do heat mapping of the inventory. We do sorting of the inventory. We do. We can run peripherals. So if you want to have conveyor or a bin picking, a vision based bin picking robot to replace a human. We run all of that on our platforms. We have this very broad, very deep software platform. And as a result, the robots you see behind me are kind of like our bread and butter. That's our picking robot. And we call it, it's picking, but it's also in the industry known as goods to person because it brings the goods to the person, very simple. In that, in the picking series, we've got probably seven or I think five different capacities of robots. So we can handle pallets, we can have big loads, small loads, all this. But then, so that's, I'll call it a vertical. Then we also have factory robots. We do moving robots. We do disinfection robots. We have four trucks. We've got many different platforms. And then within each one, we've got different capabilities and different capacities. So because we have our own software that we've developed and we have deep knowledge in, in AI and machine learning and all of this, and in the hardware space, we've adopted a, um, an automotive approach to engineering. So we build for reliability, we build for quality, we build for low cost because we build for volume, right? So we, like I said, we've got 30,000 capacity per year. We're building to make a lot of these things. So we drive the cost out, the reliability up, all of this. And that creates a, a really robust offering that, you know, you've got low cost, you've got reliability. And if you're running a distribution center or a factory or you know anything like this, we've got a broad enough product base that we can fill in a lot of the gaps under one platform, which is really nice from the client perspective because they're they're looking at it and saying, okay, we've got one throat to choke, right? If if it works, if it doesn't work, we know who to call, and it's all under one interface and it's all under one service plan and it's all one quality. So it, it it's a big advantage in the market. So how did you meet the executive team, Geek Plus? How did you actually get involved with the company? It's a it's kind of a, an interesting story. Um, I reached out to the CEO back when the company was, I think, maybe like 100 people or 80 people. It's still a pretty small company. Um, and I reached out and introduced, him to, introduced myself to him because I had, like at the same time, designed what we call a sorting robot. And he released his sorting robot on LinkedIn. And I said, hey, that's a really interesting sorting robot. And I sent him a sketch of mine that we were doing as well at that time. And it was just like, it was kind of funny because I, I reached out to him and, and I don't think he knew what to make of me. Here's this guy from the States. He's in Beijing, CEO of a small company. And I had, I had just left Amazon and he's looking at me going, who's this guy? what's he want? Does he, you know, maybe he wants money or something, who knows, right? So it's really kind of a weird intro. And after a while, um, you know, I traveled to Asia a lot. So I went over and I met him and, and we kind of broke the ice. And um, since then, you know, that was, it's, it's been more than five years. And so, you know, when I, when they decided to open operation, operations in the States, I had a, a meeting with our GM in Hong Kong and yeah, we just, we, you know, we had already been kind of collaborating and we kind of knew each other. And, and so it was like a natural fit to open operations in the States and that turned into the Americas. So we cover Chile to Alaska, right? It's, it's really um, a big area and we have this massive market and it's good. It's really good. So, so yeah, I met him by kind of a funny introduction, you know? So are the, the robots pretty, I just, I keep seeing them run around in the background. It is, <laughs> 
By the way, I think you win the award. I'm going to tell uh, Harry from Zoom. I'm going to be like, dude, this guy's background, he's got moving robots constantly doing things back there. <laughs> oh, and I'm just curious, have you ever, like, maybe Friday afternoon, everyone leave? Have you ever ridden on one? You ever just, like, jumped on one? Sure. Yeah? <laughs> Not only that, I put my dog on one. I get pictures of him riding around. Oh, that is exactly... So, I, I, I've, got, I've got a four-month-old pug puppy, and... Uh, he come, he's he's comes into the office with me. So we have a 10,000 square foot office here and he's the office dog. And so I have a video of him riding around and he's just adorable. It is so funny that you say that because in the prep for this episode with my production team, they were like, we got to ask him if he rides one. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. How, <laughs> I don't know if we should do that. But I had said that, it's like, you know what? You want to have made this video better because we watched your energy, high energy video in the in the prep call. I was like, they should have just like, when it was going, doo, 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 they should have just put like a dog on one of them. <laughs> I, I have I have funny ideas like that we just do like a video where there's somebody kind of like sailing by in the back on the robot, you know what yeah. I mean? But it's 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 not allowed. I'm not supposed to do it. So uh, you know, if you're one of our users, don't ride on a yeah, robot. Do not ride them. This is a made-believe conversation that we pre-set yeah. up. <laughs> I'm, I'm fully monitored. Somebody's watching for safety <laughs> to make sure that if I, you know, there's no no potential for injury. That'd be funny. I wouldn't be surprised if you looked at your security footage and caught like an employee <laughs> riding one. I'm not, I'm not the only one, I'm sure. I'm sure we we actually have um for for one of our videos. I think around Christmas time we have uh the um a, a rainbow unicorn in oh. in one of the inventory bins, and you can if you watch, you can kind of see him passing by in the background. So there you go. Just little like cameo stuff. That that's what makes it fun when you make you're making these videos and just putting that that touch on it. Like I was listening to Elon Musk interview and they were, you know, he describes how they're building their Tesla cars. And he's like, yeah, we kind of just do stuff because we think it's cool. It's an exercise. Yeah, of and, hubris. and I was like, see, those little moments are what makes the the culture and the work. And that's how I run my business. And I like other companies that do that. You've got a guy who who launched a roadster into space and, yeah. you know, it makes flamethrowers, right? This is, that's fun. Super fun, right? So right? I got to have fun. So I was having this conversation with uh, Yoav. He's the CEO of a company called Oro. And they do B2B commerce you know, storefronts, which I'm curious to find out if you connect to the commerce store. Well, I guess you would have to, right? But uh, that wasn't what we were talking about. We were talking mostly about open source stuff, right? And I was curious, like, how has open source impacted your business or how do you think about it? Um, to be honest, we, we really don't. Like, I, I think in general, Ross is a great thing um, because it's, an, it's, it's just an enabling piece, right? So robots themselves, not just, I, I don't think, I think in the future, I look at robots definitely as a commodity and they're becoming commoditized. But when you think about like, the traditional industrial robots that everybody thinks of like six axis welding robots, this kind of like big industrial robots, those have definitely become much more of a commoditized thing. The ability to stitch together low cost vision systems. You can put a neural network on a USB stick now, right? That's been around for, for a couple of years now. And then the ability to, to access compute in the cloud, all on like something like a raspberry Pi running Ross, and then you can control, you know, you've got this very lightweight, low cost piece of heart of, of compute hardware that you can control like amazing robots with. It doesn't matter one of these robots, a, a six axis robot, whatever. You can find a way to connect it up to it. 
this is really spurring innovation. I, I think it's great. Our, our, our software is, is closed. It's all proprietary. But I think in general, you know, Ross is a great thing, especially when you see things happening like first robotics, you know, Dean came in and introduced that years back and it was just awesome. And the things that these kids are doing because of software like Ross, it's, it's great. It's, it's how we're going to stay competitive in the future. Is Ross like a suite of tools for? So, so Ross is, is is robot operating system. It's a standard like oh. open source platform that you can just download. Um, think of it like Java for robots, right? Got it's, it. it's, yeah. It's an enabling technology. That's awesome. I'm going to, I was looking at the BattleBots. I had that guy on, the guy that's like the producer of BattleBots. And so. Oh, really? Yeah. Since then, I, had, I hadn't seen it in 10 years. You know, I'd seen it way back in the day. And then we had him coming on the show, so I had to, you know, catch up on BattleBots, which, quite honestly, sounded like the biggest dream job in the world. It's like, what are you doing? I'm watching some BattleBots for work, and I, ever since then, I just keep watching it at night because the kids love it. And I'm just thinking, man, I, I want to build one of those BattleBots. Have you guys ever done that? Geek Plus done it? We haven't, but actually, I am. Um, I started a team at a, a couple years back at at, at iHerb and hired a bunch of people really, really quick, right? And uh, one of the team building things we did, we actually went to see BattleBots in, in Irvine, or in, not Irvine, Orange County, somewhere up there. Yeah. Um, seeing it in person was really cool. It was it was definitely a, a cool team building thing. And as far as dream job, like maybe, maybe. I, I, I think building the bots is kind of more the dream job. Like if you've got ample time and funds and you can just set up a team of six or eight people and start building these robots, for fun, like that's super cool because you, you know, putting all the stuff together is again, it's the remote control. So you're really like testing your ability to, to make a machine that can take like tremendous abuse. And if you win against one battle bot, you never know what's coming next. These things have like sledgehammers on them, flamethrowers, all this. So you never know what, you, what you're coming up against. And it's really, really cool to watch that show and see like you watch the bot come out, you're like, oh, that one's definitely going to win. But then like two minutes in, one of the wheels fell off because it wasn't built right or his competitor just did something so unexpected. And you're like, I didn't see that coming. It's like, it's really a good competition. And I think in the future, we're going to look and I, I have to imagine in like four or five years, they're going to change the rules and they'll have to be fully autonomous, which that's going to be like a whole different level. I asked him if it was allowed. He said, yeah, he goes, they're, they're allowed. But he said one of the, one of the hammers on one of them actually uses AI to determine like how to position how to hit oh, down really? on it. Yeah. The best yeah. hit. Cause if you think about it, they're, they're going really fast. Some of those ones can, that was the biggest difference that I noticed from watching 10 years ago to today is how quick they are now. They're yeah. so fast. Yeah. Well, we, we see that everywhere, right? So the, the, you, you go back 10 years, brushless DC motors, which that's, you know, when you look at the Tesla symbol, right? The T above it, it's got like a little arc. That's mm -hmm. that's essentially a quadrant of a brushless DC motor, right? And so this is the technology is very, very efficient. And that's how we're getting, you know, between these very, very capable batteries and this very efficient motor technology, that's how we're getting EVs. Well, that's the technology that's made these robots and battle bots so quick and powerful because you're able to just transfer that energy so quickly and so efficiently. You go back 10 years, we were still using brushed motors, very inefficient, you know, power density and batteries wasn't close to what it is now. And so, and at least for the hobbyist market, it was hard to find that stuff. Now it's, you know, eBay and Alibaba and, and Amazon, you can find this stuff everywhere. It's, and it's great. How far do you get 
from your core business model with R&D? Because, I mean, robotics is such a huge industry outside of warehouse picking, right? So people are making advancements for EVs and battery density and things like that. So when mm -hmm. you're doing R&D, are you playing in those areas? Does it make sense for you guys? Or are you focused on other things? Um, you know, my background is is 20 years in, in R&D and ops. So R&D is really near and dear to me. Um, and, and, you know, I, and I'm definitely well-rounded in that I love manufacturing. I love factories. I'm definitely a factory guy. So the, the, I think the short answer to your question is R&D drives commodities. So let's say, you know, you're a Tesla or, or, or us, right? We, we have a very specific battery requirement, battery technology. And one of the things that we worked very hard to do is develop a, a, a battery partner and a battery spec. And then of course the battery itself that can last for many years and many, many charge cycles. So it's a very different battery than, than a, you know, battery that's used in say a four truck or a battery that's used in an EV or something like this. So we have specific needs, but we we don't get into let's say the the development of the battery, right? That that's a chemistry project and and truly like a massive manufacturing project because when you set up a battery factory, you're not making a couple of batteries for a customer. That's why like when you look at a C size battery, it's a specific you know C size or AA or or like what's in your um, what's what used to be in your laptop? I was like a fourteen eighty seven. There, there's a bunch of standards, and that's because it takes so much development to package a battery and get the chemistry to work, and then get it approved from regulatory perspective, and the supply chain to source all the materials, and then of course the manufacturing equipment. That when they turn this thing on, they want to make like billions of batteries. So if you want to, if you unpack the average battery pack, it's actually made up of lots of individual battery packs that are welded together. And so, you know, somebody like, like Geek Plus or like a Tesla, they have specific performance requirements and that translates into chemistries that some really, really bright person, you know, or team solves and then they figure out how to manufacture it. Manufacturing for these things, like a, a battery cell line, the, the machine that, that actually makes like a cell, like for, for an EV battery, it's probably like the size of it's probably 100 feet by 50 feet by like 40 feet these are like massive machines and like there's just raw material going in and batteries coming out the other side so it's a it's a huge investment it's a huge investment but but we definitely work with those teams to to make sure that they produce a solution that works for us more often than not unless you're making you know billions of products that use each of them multiple cells you're not going to be able to drive a particular a particular solution right it, it what you need tends to fit into um a piece of a puzzle that somebody else also wants because that's how you get the economies of scale you know there's a big shift right now to solid state batteries and the name of the game with batteries right is is many many discharge cycles and then so that defines how many times you can you can discharge it and recharge it and then, of course, how quick you can get energy in and out, right? So think of a battery like when you're um, you're filling a stadium, right? It's very easy to, to pour people into the stadium when it's empty. As it gets more full, people can't find their seats. It's the same thing with pushing electrons into a battery. So, so there's lots of games that they're playing right now to get batteries that you can charge very quickly, but that don't heat up. Because when you push those electrons in, they heat up, and that's what causes the battery to not have a long life. So... 
Um, we've seen a paradigm shift in batteries, and that's what's made EVs possible. They have this great, you know, 300 plus mile range and, you know, thousands of cycles, but it's, it's got to get even better than where it is today. And companies like Toshiba and Panasonic and, and Tesla themselves are driving that kind of technology. What's next? What's going to happen to this? Like what's coming down the pipeline in five years? I won't even go 10 years out because 10 years is hard to see, but what's happening in five years? Well, yeah, I, I think we're sitting under this avalanche um, that's kind of like waiting to fall and, and, and in a good way though, right? I, we're not going to get dead in this avalanche. It's a good thing. 5G is, is coming on board. So you've got the ability to have this massive pipeline to the cloud. The cloud's established, but cloud compute continues to grow. The applications available to continue to grow. Like, you know, if you think back 10 years when you had your Windows machine, it would get a virus every, every like every day. You'd have to like wipe it and refresh it. Now, like get a Chromebook. Who, who wants to update software, right? Your Chromebook can last you five, 10 years because there's no compute happening there. You just need a good internet connection. So, you have the connection through 5G, you've got cloud compute, edge compute is really, you know, becoming prevalent where you've got minimal processing actually at the site, but then you do the heavy lift in the cloud and the, the 5G connection makes that work. And then it's the devices, right? That's where we're going to really see things change because think about it right now, when you bring home a device, you have to connect it to Wi-Fi. And if, like in a short while, you're just going to bring home a device, you're going to scan a QR code and there's no Wi-Fi. It's just, it's going to connect to 5G and then it'll pop onto your Wi-Fi when it needs to, but the connectivity is going to change a lot of stuff. And then battery power density. So as you, you know, you've got higher power density, which means the batteries are smaller and they last longer. So now you can have all sorts of devices are going to be built in your clothing. They're going to be built into like, like the most mundane thing, like your blender might have connectivity in it because it wants to know like you know you may want to be calorie tracking or or maybe your scale has connectivity you just take a picture of what's on your scale and it automatically knows okay the weight it it, it identifies it as as minced chicken which is a lot of compute to do that but because you can connect instantly and seamlessly you can do that and now you know like okay there's so many calories so like think about going to the gym most most gyms aren't connected but why not right why, why isn't your phone just uh, just pointed at the thing you're going on, right? And it knows, okay. And it should be able to tell how many reps you're doing because it's connected to the, to the device itself. So you want to do like a training session. You're not like logging, like we used to have a logbook and now you can do it on your app. Well, now it just does it automatically. So the connectivity and the commute, compute and the ability to have devices that are just persistent because they have batteries that last like days without needing a charge, not, not a day, but days and weeks. That's, uh, this is going to change a lot of how we live. And then of course, you know, you've got, you want to think, you know, five years out, I think, you know, autonomy, autonomous driving is definitely going to be a lot more prevalent. You want to go a few more years out forget about terrestrial driving and, and driving in cars and start looking at, at three space, right? We're not going to be sitting in traffic because our autonomous vehicle is waiting because, you know, somebody fell off a bridge and it stopped autonomous traffic. No, no, no. We're going to be in the sky, right? There's no point to sitting on the ground anymore. And I think it's going to be really cool because what are we going to do with all that space that we tied up for roads, right? And, and you'll still need roads, but you'll need roads for like less stuff. So maybe, maybe the five, which is 14 lanes across becomes like 
goes back to like a three lane highway and we re- repurpose that space for green space for you take your dog for a run or who knows, right? Mountain biking, like, go do something more creative with it. Yeah, I, I think the future is amazing. It's also in some ways amazingly scary when you think about all this data that we just, you know, we produce a lot of data without knowing it. And what people can do with that data is great, but also just like, use the chainsaw analogy, right? Chainsaw was a great invention. If you had to cut wood with a, a manual saw or an ax before, chainsaw is great, but look what they did in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, massacre right? It can do bad things too. So um, data is gonna be really interesting and we need to be very careful about the companies we trust and the governments we trust with that data. Anyway, that's, that's probably a lot more than you bargained for with that question. No, I love it. You think like I do. Uh, how do you deal with the AI stuff and the, let's talk about just the United States. One of the things I had heard in the, did, by the way, did you see the Elon Musk interview with Joe Rogan? Like the most recent one? No, I haven't seen the most recent one. Okay. Two things. First thing is the Tesla Roadster is going to hover. So get ready oh, for really? that. That's what he said in the interview. He's like, we're going to make that's it. That's going to be mind blowing. I definitely yeah. want to see that. I, that's what I was saying. And he said, it's going to be out in like two years. I was thinking to myself, whoa, you must have a prototype then, sir. <laughs> right? I don't know about you, but I don't say that stuff unless if I have a prototype of it. But so I'm very excited to see what comes of that. But the other thing he was talking about, um, but I didn't get it, they didn't get a clear answer on was like, how do you create sort of some government body that sort of oversees AI, right? The advancement of AI. Have you thought about that at all? I have, and I don't have an answer for it. It's, it's AI by, by definition kind of takes on a life of its own. So, so now you're basically creating a handler, right? So, so are you limiting the ability of AI? Are we saying AI can like, how, like, where do you start to peel that onion? It's because I'm less worried about the AI than I am about the people who hold the leash. You know what I mean? What about the AI food data? Right. AI food data. Well, like the AI's food would be data, right? That's how the yeah, AI yeah, yeah. would grow. That's what it would have to right, eat to grow. Right. So how do we, how do we, do we have a government agency right now that's concerned with data? Because I keep seeing these clips on YouTube of these really old people who don't even understand how cell phones worked interviewing Zuckerberg. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, this is water and oil. Let's get some smarter people in there, please. Yeah. Let's at least get somebody who can call bullshit, right? Yeah. <laughs> What are you telling me here, right? Because because he he spun a lot of stuff at those hearings, a- anyway, and he got away with it. But so good for him. But I I think as far as the AI that we give up. So first off, people when I talk about like what do we educate people like kids in school like about their money about their finances. Well, the currency of today really is your time and your data, right? I mean, that, at the end of the day, that's that's probably the most valuable thing. You look at the big tech plays; it's all about data. And the stuff that happens in the background with people's data, most people have no idea. So it's, I think, educating people about what happens with data. What are they giving up? And at what cost, right? I think most people, for the advantage you get from using Google, they would still give up all their data, right? And and go back like, I don't know, 18 years, your cell phone. It was like a flip phone, right? It had no processing. You were happy it could connect. That's it. If you could send a text, bonus. But back in that time, your credit card company knew a full six months just from your purchasing history that you were going to get divorced before you even had an idea. So they they were already having, you know, applying data science to very basic data. You that's like the data stream you've produced today is so rich and so full. 
like it's too late. Like I, I tell my kids, like your, your day is already out there. Forget about it. It's your kids. You're going to have to protect because you and me, we've given up our data just from our searches and we're pretty much, they know our fingerprint, whoever consumes data. And you would have a very hard time reeling any of that back in. It's too late. You can't walk it back. So educating people about what happens with their data and how it's how valuable it is, because people make money off of your time sitting on the internet watching YouTube. They make money off of your searches. They're, they're always monetizing this stuff. So you know, educating people about that, I think, is really important. And then you know, having a government agency... I don't know. I have a hard time when people say I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It just never pans out well. No, you know. So I, I, I have no idea. I, 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 this is, this is, um, this goes back to the chainsaw analogy. It's really, really good, but it can be really, really bad. So, at least there's some good, you know, open AI. There are some good actors out there who are putting money behind artificial intelligence, so that if we did have like a battle of the Alexas and the Siri's, <laughs> that's like the next <laughs> war, right? Alexa versus Siri. I'd love to see like a, like, like one of those two, I won't say which one go evil and then argue with the other one, you know, like, <gasps> like good devil, bad devil. It'd be, that would be pretty funny. So sure. Some creative guy, a person has put uh, that on YouTube or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So when this whole COVID thing happened, that just put your business in a frenzy. What happened there? COVID's been like uh, really good to us. I hate, you know. Hey, me too. I've been, it's, I've been it's feeling true, bad right? about it. It's true, right? It's driven a lot of businesses to look at their operations very critically and say, okay, our brick and mortar stores are kind of like on ice for right now. What do we do? So they pushed a lot of stuff to 3PL, third-party logistics to fulfill online orders. And then they very quickly swung into action to update their websites, become more present, really push marketing online, get into people's lives. They're doing a lot of kind of guerrilla marketing with, you know, getting into TikTok and YouTube and channels that aren't really the norm, but that's driven a lot of business to their e-com platform. That's the goal. And so then, you know, think, go back to where we started, which is, you know, somebody walking up and down an aisle, picking at say 40, 50 items an hour. By the end of the day, these, these people have walked, you know, 10, 15 miles in a day. It's not easy. It's not easy to find people to work these jobs. So, you know, these companies are really under a crunch to, to kind of modernize or die. And at the start, everybody's like, eh, COVID's going to go away in a month. Like, I thought it was going to like peak out and then like drag on for a few months and then be done back to normal. I think a lot of people thought this back in March of last year. And here we are a year later and we're still like, especially in the state of California where I am, you know, we're still like mostly on ice, you know, there's other states where they're kind of back to normal, but you know, these national and international players, they're dealing with this major impact to how they do business. And so they, when they look back, they're like, yeah, we'll just kind of get by. Well, it's dragged on long enough that by like June, July of last year, people, you know, clients were coming to us and saying, okay, this isn't really going anywhere too soon. And we were going to update our, you know, we needed to update our solutions in probably two, three years, but now we need something right away. Like we need an answer quick. What, what can we do to get more efficiency out of our operations? So a lot of budgets like that were on ice suddenly opened up again. And all of a sudden it was like, all right, you, you just constricted the veins and all of a sudden there's a massive flow. So we have this very strong pipeline and like our applications staff has been just flat out developing 
proposals and applications. And those things have like really fast tracked through on our client side and gotten funded. And so we're like, we have robots, like, you know, we just had a site where we had 28 containers show up of all the, of all the, the robots and racks. And so we're doing deployments fast and, and our systems are kind of cool in that, you know, we don't go into a, a building and you have to put down miles and miles, like literally 20 miles of conveyor at like a thousand dollars a foot and racks that are bolted to the floor and all this. Like our, our robots, we go in we put stickers on the floor. We create a grid. Then we build the racks and we put up some workstations. The whole thing gets safety fenced in and it's like, boom, rolling the robots and you induct your goods and you're online. Right. And the AI starts doing its thing. We're live in like three to five months. Whereas, you know, if you were looking at traditional hardware, you got to you, basically it's like an 18 to 24, 18 to 30 month deployment cycle. So there's a lot of money to be left on the table if you don't get your system up quick. What does the sales process look like? If I come to you, I, let's say I have a warehouse. Actually, my parents have a warehouse um, because okay. they they own a weight loss slash health facility. Yep. I, I'm not describing it well. They'd be so upset at me right now. <laughs> Um, yeah, but they own, it's called peaks of health and you know, they've got like a 10,000 square foot warehouse because they do vitamins for their customers. They have doctors on staff and they do all sorts of healthcare type stuff. But I I was just curious, I know you deal with like much larger size, but for people that are listening and, and that might have factories, what does your sales process look like? How deep do you go? Do you actually start designing models and mockups? Like, how do you sell a system like this? It's huge. It takes a lot of time and money. What does that look like? Yeah, I want to I want to dip into something after I answer this, which is that things are going small. But the process is like this: you know, we get connected to a, a potential client, and we we either connect to them directly, or most likely we use our channel partners. So we have integrator channel partners who already have clients. And they're always, you know, kind of out beating the bushes for new clients, right? And so you've got a warehouse, our our channel partner will connect w- with them. They'll find out, okay, how many orders, you know, they just get some basic data. What's your operation like? How many orders a day are you doing? What's your SKU profile, which is, you know, how many different items do you have? What's their physical size, inventory mix? You know, what's your peak demand? What's your nominal demand? And from this, We'll go in and we'll just say, okay, this is how many square feet you need, which is our, almost always like 30% less than what they have. So they can expand in the same building without having to get a new building. And then, you know, we basically cost it all up. And so we give them kind of a rough, a, 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 what we call a ROM estimate or a rough order of magnitude mes- estimate. And then, they, you know, they're like this, yeah, we, we're we interested or not, right? We either have capital budget or we don't. It's not what we expected. And sometimes our solution isn't a fit, right? We 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 are a very flexible tool, but we're not always the right fit. So so a lot of times customers, the end customer will, will be soliciting proposals from a number of different technologies, and and very frequently we're the winner. But of course, not always, right? So so we're happy to have that discussion. If the ROM estimate is accepted, then we do a full detailed proposal, which we do, you know, very detailed CAD layouts, and we do software integration, um, discovery. And then we have a very, uh, we do an analysis to understand the binning uh, and we've got different robots, right? So we may also suggest other robots. We've got our, our P series, which you see behind me, but we also have sorting robots and we have shuttle robots, which carry totes. 
And then we may bring in other pieces like, you know, six axis vision-based bin picking robots. And then we put this whole thing together, give a detailed proposal and we have a dialogue uh, and then we get a PO, right? And then after the PO hits, three to five months later, you're up and running depending on the complexity and our, you know, what's our capacity? Do we have robots in inventory? Are we producing for you? Blah, blah, blah. So it's a very, very easy process. We, and, and we try to make it easy. It, it's one of the advantages that we see ourselves having is that we're very easy to deal with. Nice, nice. And I like it because all of this business is just advancing robotics. Like your business growing advances the entire robotics industry as well. And I was curious, like, when am I going to, you know, the movie iRobot with Will Smith? Um, uh, yep. Aside from all the death and destruction, <laughs> the idea of the humanoid robots being able to interact with them. I see all the pieces. Oh, like I've man. seen the minds inside of the series and the Alexas. I'm seeing the arms come out from like, you know, the picking technologies. I'm seeing the vision systems improve. It feels yes. like we're, we're just running towards this, this human. And I was having some conversations. I was like, where are we going to see these first? One person shared with me um, that would probably see it in like elderly care first because there's money there there has to be a business model for the humanoid robot to exist mm. like companionship is not enough of a like industry I, I don't think early on to get investors in but from what my experience has been uh, just subjective like just talking around to people is that they think it'll the industry that'll move the humanoid robots farther forward will be like elderly care yeah it's it's possible anything interacting with humans is tough Right, because there's just high risk of of hurting somebody. So, so you really don't want to try out your first pass at technology in a situation where the optics of accidentally killing grandma are not good, <laughs> right? And, and it would truly be an accident. But that kind of stuff could happen. But but you're right. So so first off, we're sitting at this awesome confluence of technology. Again, five G putting compute in the cloud. If you've got a robot, you don't have to dedicate a lot of energy to processing or a lot of weight for the battery or for the compute module itself on the bot. You just give it connectivity, let it communicate via 5G to the cloud that does all the heavy lifting or to the edge and then the cloud, right? So, and when you have that data, right? So now you're, you've got a robot, right? Think about self-driving cars. Today, you're driving down the road, the car is totally on its own. It's got a lot of compute on board. So a lot of your, a lot of your mileage is going to compute. If we were doing compute in the cloud, you're driving down the road along with 40 other EVs, uh, autonomous EVs, they're mapping, that map should be shared. And so after a day, you've got an extremely precise map of everything in, in three space. But let's say, you know, a fridge falls off a truck. Well, your car doesn't have to worry about discovering it because a car two minutes before you discovered it and you got the shared data. Well, it's the same thing when you think about humanoid robots, right? All of that path planning that happens to move the limbs or move the fingers or interact, let's say, with a coffee pot because you're giving grandma a coffee, right, to your assisting. Once it's learned, the machine just continues to improve the model instead of it being a discrete model that lives on that particular bot in that particular house. That's where things get really exciting in, in terms of penetrating markets, whether it's you know, humanoid assisting robots or maybe it's just a hotel reception robot or a bank teller robot, right? That kind of stuff. You've got, you've got like, like, um, you know, I, I love uh, uh, robotics, right? The 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 folks over in, in they're not far from here in California. They do, um, they also do. Uh, what what's the name of that company? Real Doll, Real Doll, right? Real Doll. So Real yeah. Doll has a lot of tech built into 
creating a presence, right? And that's that's like an art and it's a te- and it's a technology. So then if you put the underpinnings of of an elegant machine that can wear this sort of skin and then you put the intelligent, you know, then you get power density and very fine motion control through using brushless DC motors and and very fine gearboxes and and night and all like there's all sorts of technologies you can bring to making motion appear very human like because this is the compute that we do to do this kind of stuff is amazing getting a computer to do is hard but once you've taught a computer and you can share that information between now right it's quite easy and the fact that you can share it means you can make a model that's uniformly bad Hey, no problem, because it gets uniformly better as you teach it more, right? So that's awesome. And so I definitely think we're going to see the humanoid stuff, right? Probably my favorite my favorite robot company, like aside from my own Geek Plus, right, is, is, is uh, Boss Dynamics. These guys, oh, yeah. the stuff that they're doing is just like, they're truly like bleeding edge in terms of, being able to do compute that is super, super elegant and then translating that to, um, to motion. Have so, you bought so, one of the spots? What's like, that? You can buy them for like, I think 75 grand now, the spot. spot I love spot. spot. Spot's super cool. And it's a really useful app. Like it's really useful, but like they're Atlas. Like you can't help but just be like, holy shit, did that thing just do a backflip? Wow, yeah. right? And then you watch the dynamics when they do it in slow motion. The dynamics of the recovery when it lands uh, the, it's just elegant. It's beautiful from an engineering perspective. It's a it's a work of art, and so, like you know, th- they are at. We're really at the start. Like it's taken a long time, but the as we go further down this path, we accelerate exponentially. Right? So, so th- yeah, yeah, because the compute, like the compute stuff going to the cloud, that's going to be like a, a step change in what happens. And then you know, batteries. Batteries still have some catch up to do motors are are getting really good but they're going to get better and different types of actuators and then you start to like bring in mass production to take the cost of a spot which is let's say it's 75k right but let's say that thing costs five grand wouldn't you have a spot like to to be your security guard at your building heck yeah sure i would right and so so i would have a spot to hang out with me and help me host the show i (laughs) would have a spot just to go get me a drink it'd be just cool five grand right i mean who wouldn't want to do that and that's where we're going to go with with stuff like atlas like atlas is right now you you can't you you can't even do it because the government wouldn't want you to have one right they don't want to let people have that kind of fun they want to save that for the battlefield but it's going to come and when it does it's going to be super cool when you when you come home and your 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 atlas light built you know made you dinner and and uh and vacuumed, right? Forget about the Roomba. I want, I want this thing wearing an apron and, and go go take my Dyson and vacuum for me. <laughs> so, right? Have you seen the robot hands that make the food too you can buy? Yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, think about that like in your restaurant and then go back to, okay, I'm fighting for 15 bucks an hour. Well, but I can put this thing in my, in my restaurant and it's going to attract people just because it's there and they can watch it. It's already in Asia. Like I go to Asia, I can get teammate by these, by pretty traditional six axis robots, but they're so entertaining to watch that I'll pay like an extra 50 cents for it, but it's not that expensive. And these guys are making money hand over fist because they run 24 hours a day. And this is the start. They're using, you know, expensive robots. When you start purpose building robots, I was at Mattel and, and 
the toy industry is extremely competitive, right? They, these guys, they do magic to make Barbie and Hot Wheels and all this stuff. And when you talk about the technology that goes into making these toys, it's amazing. And, and they fight with the fact that you're making something that is razor thin margins, very competitive. So if they can bring in automation, it's great. But when you, when they look at, okay, what if I want to do like, I want to, I want to reduce the cost of operating my factory. Well, put in a vision system. 10 years ago, it cost, or even five years ago, it cost you a hundred grand to put in a vision system that had enough accuracy and acuity to inspect paint on a, on a toy car. Now, you know, we did a project where a, a team at SDSU put together a, a neural network on a, on a Raspberry Pi with a camera that was had capability to do this kind of inspection for like a hundred bucks. You connect that up to the cloud. Now your your whole factory can be reporting data real time on what's the quality, what's the throughput, right? So we're going to see a lot of changes. And, and arguably, unless we get some really bad actors, it's going to be very cool. Nice. Dude, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. But as we start to wrap up, I mean, your business is probably growing. Are you recruiting? Are you looking for talent? Yeah, yeah, we're hiring. Um, check our page. We're, we, we've got positions open around the world, not just in the States, around the world. So we, we, we're, I think we're about 900 people now, and, and um, we have some extremely aggressive numbers to just, to, as far as putting robots in the field in the next two to three years. And we're definitely staffing up to get behind that. So whether, you know, we've got manufacturing, we've, we've got field service engineers, deployment, application. I mean, you can come to this company and learn a lot too, in terms of, you know, technology. Plus we're, you know, we're a global co company. So there's a lot to learn in terms of working with the global culture. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.